uh, we're going to be doing uh, our continuing our study through the Ten Commandments. Commandment number seven today, Exodus chapter twenty, uh, verse thirteen, is where we're going to be at uh, together today. Um, weddings, weddings are a lot of fun. I don't know the last time you went to a wedding, but it's one of those things that I really enjoy as a pastor being able to do, uh, being able to be a part of. It's one of my great joys as a pastor. And, uh, you know, when, you, when you're planning a wedding, there's a lot of excitement, a lot of fun, a lot of anticipation that's surrounding all of it. And there's a lot of planning that goes into putting a wedding together. And while a wedding day might be really exciting and a whole lot of effort being go, going into it, and it's definitely a significant day in your marriage, it's not the most important important day in your marriage. There is another day that's more important than your wedding day, and that's the last day of your marriage. And sadly, many people don't think about the last day of their marriage. They think a lot about, put a lot of attention into, put a lot of focus on the first day of their marriage, but they don't really think about the last day of their marriage. And that's something that I think we need to take uh, uh, time to think about and to really give attention to. You see, you can either live for a good time or a good legacy. And, and if you are living for a good time, people who say that, they just say, you know, I just, I just want to have a good time. I don't really want to worry about all that stuff in the future. I just want to kind of live for right here, right now, and what, what's going to satisfy me the most in this moment. And when you do that, you forfeit a good legacy. You forfeit the opportunity to have a good legacy. Instead of making decisions that consider your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, and maybe you don't have any of those right now. Maybe you're even single and you're thinking, what are you talking about? The thing is, is to, to help you understand and to consider there is a legacy for you. There's something you're going to leave behind. And if you're not thinking long-term, if you're not thinking about the last day of your life, then it's going to affect the way that you plan for the, this day that you're living in in your life. Many people, they don't think about the future. They just live for the pleasure of right here, right now. And be, before we get started into all this, I just want to warn you that everything I'm about to say is highly controversial. Everything I'm, I'm going to say to you right now is really controversial, and it's, it's really um, an affront to our culture. Uh, and so it's just going to be really offensive. So, um, you know, maybe we've got uh, quite a few viewers going on Facebook now and that's going to drop as I go. I don't know. Uh, or maybe it's going to go up because people are going to be like, hey, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. You don't know what this guy's going to say next. Here, just check this out. Uh, I don't know what it's going to be. But also, I just want to say this to, to some of you who maybe you have some kids around. Uh, some of this might not be appropriate for some of your kids. Um, I think it's very appropriate for those kids who are maybe middle school and older, but maybe some of those younger kids, maybe this is uh, an opportunity for you to uh, uh, quickly find something else for them to, to be able to do during this time. So that way, uh, I, I just don't want to violate any of their innocence. So here's our big idea as we jump in today. It's this, that God's design for marriage is one man and one woman for one lifetime. All right, so we got to keep that in mind as we check out what we're looking at in Exodus 20. So let's read Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. It says, excuse me, verse, I, I didn't change my notes, I guess. Verse 14, uh, it says this, you shall not commit adultery. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. God, we thank you for the opportunity to um, be able to gather together in your name um, and just to know that uh, the, the gathering in your name isn't confined to one place, in one time, in one location, but that your spirit is with us wherever we are. And God, I just thank you for uh, the opportunity to leverage technology for your kingdom's sake. And we, we ask that today as we open your word together, that you would speak to us that you would help us to understand what it is that you have to say and that we would abandon our own way in favor of your way. So God, help us with that today, we pray in your name. Uh, in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so today we're going to look at this verse in three parts. Three parts for this verse is going to be this. Number one, God's design for marriage. Secondly, the damage of adultery. And then guarding against adultery. Uh, so as we think about this, we read this verse. It says there in Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. When we're thinking about adultery, really what we're addressing is marriage. And so we got to start with that. We got to start with the idea of what even is marriage. There used to be a day in, uh, in our culture where that wasn't necessary, but today is a day where this is absolutely necessary. What is 
What is marriage? And what does it mean for us when we think about marriage? So what is, number one, God's design for marriage? Here's, here's the first thing I think we've got to grasp in this. Christians think differently about everything. Christians think differently about everything, including marriage. Okay, so when we talk about what we think from a Christian perspective about marriage... People aren't going to agree with us, and that shouldn't be a surprise. That shouldn't be shocking to you because you are not like the world if you're in Christ. And the more that our culture drifts away from God, the more that uh, our culture will abandon God's ways. So, so as we look at what's happening within our culture, as time marches on, uh, the, the, the culture, by and large, is growing further and further away from God, and therefore, it's going to show up in the way that we think about things, uh, including marriage. And society has actually become numb to the spiritual truths of both the origin of marriage, as well as how it is that a union of marriage is sustained. How does this thing work? How does it move forward? And in fact, there are essentially, if you kind of break it down, there's kind of two views on marriage. There's the, uh, the idea that marriage is a contract. That's the first view. And this is by and large the most popular view. This is where most people fit into, into this category. That's a, it's a contract and it, that uh, people would say marriage is just this, this product of the evolutionary process and that as society has developed and as people have become more and more uh, uh, societally uh, developed and growing together, then this thing of marriage just came out somewhere. And so we've just been practicing this uh, for, for a long time just because of that. And, it's, and so what they do is they reduce the idea of marriage down to a simple contract, that it's two people, that you enter into a contract, and it's kind of like a business arrangement. And you know I'll fulfill my end of the deal as so far as you fulfill your end of the deal and that if you don't do your thing then I'm out of my end and then we just can dissolve the contract and go our separate ways and, and we're not going to have any big issues or anything. It's just going to be this contractual agreement. That's, that's one thought and that's the way that most people think about marriage. But there's another thought. It's actually a biblical thought and here it is. It's that marriage is a covenant. Not a contract but a covenant. And this is a, a really important thing for us to grasp. You see, God in, is the one who created marriage. He's the one who instituted marriage. He's the one who thought of it. He's the one who said, let's, let's put this in as uh, a human relationship. In fact, God presided over the first marriage. When you go back to Genesis and you look at chapter two and how God took Adam and he creates Eve and he brings them together, he presides over the first wedding ceremony and brings the two together as one. And it's, an, it's a vastly important thing for us to grasp in this. Within this idea of, a, uh, of marriage, not as a contract, but as a covenant, it's vital for us to understand there aren't two parties in this. There are three parties in this. There's the man, there's the woman, and there is God. He is that third party that is, by and large, alienated from most marriage relationships, even though he's still participating, because he is that third party within the marriage relationship. And by abandoning God and his design for marriage, we actually turn marriage, listen to this, this is vital, grasp this, when we abandon God in his ways, we turn marriage into a means of self-serving, instead of serving God and serving our spouse. And when marriage is about me and making me feel good and, and what I want and what I'm hoping to get out of it, we turn marriage into something that it was never designed to be. And so we've got to be really, really careful with this. That, that uh, God's design is one man and one woman for one lifetime. That, that's, that was our big idea. That's what we're looking at today. That, that when we violate this, it ruins everything. And so we've got to come back to the biblical view of what marriage is and start there and let everything else flow out of, out of that. You see, when people abandon God, then they invent their own definition of what marriage is. They invent their own ideas about what they think marriage is. And, and really, it's based upon feelings. Excuse me, I got to get a little bit of water. Uh, it's based upon their feelings. How do I feel? Do I, do I feel like uh, I should be married to you uh, continuing on? Do I feel like I even want to get married? Maybe I'll just live with somebody. Do I feel like marriage should be between a man and a woman? Or do I feel like it should be between a man and a man? Or a woman and a woman? Or a man and four women? Or a woman and three men? Where does this end? 
How do we decide this? And, and where, where this continues to go and what we see in our culture is that this ends up being where then it becomes uh, like what Rome went into, where it's a man and maybe some children is what marriage is. And, and so when we start going down the roads of feelings, there's no end to this. And so this is something that we've got to guard against. Now in this, um, what, we, what I want to really point out is that any deviation from biblical marriage is not marriage. People want to call it marriage. They want to say that's what it is. They want to hijack the term and say, I'm going to redefine it and make it whatever I want it to be, but it's not really marriage. Now, if, you know, as an American, if people want the freedom to do, you know, whatever they want, you know, there's a part of me that is sort of like, okay, well, you have the freedom as an American uh, to, to do that, but you still can't call it marriage. You don't get to take God's term and redefine it to be whatever you want it to be. What that is, in fact, is not marriage. It's just a sinful perversion of what God designed. God created marriage. God instituted marriage. And so he gets to define what marriage is. And he's clearly defined it as one man, one woman, one lifetime. And what adultery does, and the reason that it makes God's top 10 list is because adultery violates the marriage covenant by sexual sin. That's what it does. It, it violates this covenant of, of relationship through sexual sin. And, and, and essentially what it is, is that as we see more rebellion against God, what we end up seeing is that more adultery is taking place. That, that's, that, that's a direct correlation in our culture. And this rebellion against God is showing up in sexual ways. Uh, there are, within uh, culture and society, there are bit, three basic views of sex. I think it's important for us to understand this as we uh, consider the idea of adultery. There's the pagan view of sex, and that is that sex is God. Uh, here, I, just like I would say that in the views of marriage that it's just a contract, uh, I would say that pretty much everybody in our culture fits into this category. Even people who would claim to be Christians, they have a pagan view of sex. They would say that sex is everything. It runs their lives. That, that most of the world fits into this and, and that um, people are either strangers or they are sex objects uh, for me. And, and that's just where most of the culture fits into. That there is this thing where personal desire, my personal happiness, my personal pleasure, they become the highest priority for me. They are where I am aiming and I'm putting all my attention there. That, that is, as long as my personal self is satisfied or whatever desires I have are satisfied, then, then I'm doing good. In fact, in this idea of sex being God, it's important to kind of consider and, and to, to take this into consideration that in pagan rituals, sex is used very often in, in pagan worship. It's one of those things that's used very often. They include sexual acts in that. And that really what ends up happening is that outside of the biblical confines of, of the marriage relationship, that sexual activity is actually demon worship. Your bed becomes an altar where you offer your body as a sacrifice to a demon. That, that is, I don't know about you, but I don't want anything to do with that. That, that is absolutely a terrible kind of a thing. Listen to what Romans 12, 1 says. And, and maybe you'll have to think about this and, and uh, apply it a little bit differently. Let me help you with it. It's this, Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do you see that there? Look at that verse for just a minute. The idea of your body, your physical body, and spiritual worship are not disconnected from each other. They're in fact unified. These things go together. That's why when we worship God, we sing to him, right? That's, that's what we commonly say. Hey, let's have a time of worship. And we sing and we raise our hands and we cry out to the Lord and we pray to him. That's because when you're going to do something spiritual, it's going to involve your body physically as well. You can't disconnect those ideas. They are absolutely connected. Spiritual worship happens with your physical body. They're not separate issues. Separate issues. They're not compartmentalized. They are unified concepts. And so here's the thing. 
We, we talked about this earlier in our study in the Ten Commandments. Your life isn't linear. It's not like a stack of things where God's at the top and then all the other stuff gets prioritized. No, your life is more circular where whatever is your God is at the center of your life and there's this gravity that surrounds all of it. Everything runs to and from whatever's at the center of your life. And if you worship sex as God, then everything in life is gonna be centered around that. It's gonna, whatever's at the center of your life gives you your priorities, Whatever's at the center of your life gives you your values. Whatever's at the center of your life gives you direction. Listen, whatever's at the center of your life gives you identity. And think about that just for a moment and think about the chaos of our world sexually and identity-wise today. You see, there is such a sexual and gender chaos in our world today. And the reason is because sex is at the center of people's lives because they've dethroned Jesus from where he really belongs and they've put their own pleasure there. And so now people are running crazy trying to identify their lives and trying to, to give their lives purpose and meaning by, by whatever gender they want to identify as, by who they do and don't want to have sex with. This is crazy, guys. This is insane. We, we have got to come to our senses and realize that your identity is a lot more than who you do and don't have sex with. It's a lot more than that. That Jesus is where identity comes from. And when we abandon him as the source of our identity, we run into all sorts of depravity, all sorts of chaos, all sorts of nonsense. So not only that view that, that sex is God, but secondly, the, the second view is a hyper-religious view. Not only a pagan view, but a hyper-religious view that sex is gross. Now, this is, this is sort of like where the pendulum swings the other way. We have the, the pendulum on one side where sex is everything. And then, you know, some people with a hyper-religious view, they swing the pendulum really far back the other direction. And they say, well, no, it's actually terrible. It's something that we, we don't talk about. We, even me saying it right now in a church setting, it's weird for you. You feel like, oh, are we allowed to talk about this? Of course we're allowed to talk about this. It's in the Bible. God invented this and we need to address it appropriately. We don't want to be inappropriate and just uh, controversial for the sake of controversy's sake, but we do want to address what God has to say. And so this hyper-religious view says that sex is gross. And even in some Christian, I use that term very loosely, Christian circles, they react to this worldview and they essentially say that sex is an unfortunate thing uh, that is necessary for procreation. And in fact, women were taught that you just got to let that dirty man do his filthy thing and get it over with as quickly as possible. It is absolutely a crazy idea that degrades one of the things that God has given to us uh, into something that it's not designed to be. So the third view, here's the, here's the view that we hold. Sex is a gift. This is the biblical view. Sex is a gift. It's created, designed, and gifted by God with, uh, as a physical unity tied to the spiritual. Remember we talked about that in Romans 12, that, that the physical and the spiritual are tied intimately together. It's not just something you do with your body. There's a whole lot more to it. And there's a spiritual reality attached to it. That physically, this is uh, tied to the spiritual. And it's this union, this, this marriage, this bond between a man and a woman within the confines of their marriage. Their their covenant devotion to one another. It's an intimacy that, dis, that uh, dis, is displayed of a greater intimacy. You see, under the lordship of Jesus, it's a means of worshiping God, a spiritual worship that is, that is done physically. Now, in this, marriage is much more than just a man and a woman. Uh, it's, it's about more than just them. It's more, more than just me and my wife, Micah. It's, it's about a lot more than that. You see... It's a unique relationship designed by God to be a powerful picture of him and his people. It, it, it represents Jesus and his church. That's one of the major points of marriage in itself. Ephesians 5, 31 through 32 says this, as, scriptures, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one because of this reality that that marriage has more to do with a spiritual truth than it has to do with a physical reality because of this marriage is under heavy spiritual attack 
that there is a, a war against your marriage relationship. There is a, a war, if you're not married, there is a war against you and your future marriage. There is a war on these things. And destroying the covenant of marriage, what it does is it doesn't destroy just those people. It doesn't just destroy that family. It doesn't just destroy that, that man and woman. It doesn't just destroy that, those children. It destroys the picture of the covenant relationship of God with his people. It does so much damage on so many levels. You see, when I make marriage about me and my desires instead of God and his desires, I pervert marriage and I destroy the precious gift with my sin. And that, that, that's what we're doing with our, with our culture. That's what's taking place in so many ways. All right, so not only God's design for marriage, but let's look at now the damage of adultery. You see, Marriage is this precious gift from God. It's this beautiful thing that God has given to us as this precious gift. And as you, as you think about your marriage, uh, think about it like this, that, that you have, it's kind of like this plant. I don't know how to hold this with a camera, uh, but uh, it's kind of like this plant. It's like this, this, this thing, you know, it starts off as a seed and you've got to put it in some good soil and you've got to get it growing. And, and if you really, you know, you put effort into it and you, you're, you're nice to it and you say, I, I guess if you say nice things, plants grow better, things like that. Um, I, we don't really know in our family about how to grow things that are green. They all die in our house. Uh, we're good at murdering plants, uh, but we're, we're not good at growing them. But if you do, then eventually it grows and it's beautiful and it flourishes. And this is a picture of what your marriage could be. This is how your marriage could be. But here is what happens with adultery. When you commit adultery, that's exactly what you do to your marriage. You kill it. You take all the life out of it. You, you just, you cut the, the marriage covenant apart. And, 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 you know, you look at this and you say, well, it's not dead. Well, it's not dead yet. Even though you don't see the immediate effects of it and it doesn't, you know, it still looks alive. It still looks like things are going, but this, this is going to die. There's, there's no, I can't stick it back in the pot and it's just going to somehow come back to life or anything like that. This is dead. And when we commit adultery, that's what we are doing. We are murdering our relationship. You see, sin, including uh, sexual sin, including adultery, has massive consequences. Massive consequences. And it's just not worth it. And so that's why it makes God's top 10 list. You see, in the Old Testament, adultery was actually grounds for execution. That, that, that you, would, you would be stoned to death. You would be executed for committing adultery. And in the New Testament, it's one of the only two expressly stated reasons for divorce. We have in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus says this, and I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. That, that divorce is permitted, as Jesus teaches here, under the grounds of unfaithfulness, which is talking about sexual sin. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15 says it like this, but if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other, for God has called you to live in peace. These, these are the only two expressly stated biblical reasons for divorce to take place. Now, now, in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the life is being cut out of your marriage relationship through sexual sin. That's what you're doing. It's not just, you know, it's not just something that you're just playing with something or you just got this thing on the side. It's, it's not having an affair. We need to remove that nonsensical terminology from our vocabulary because it reduces the weight of what's actually taking place. We are murdering our relationships. We are chopping them apart. And it can happen in a small, senseless, careless act. It can happen in just, just something that didn't seem to be such a big deal. Now, in this, uh, you know, we, what we see here is that uh, in America, the, the average U.S. marriage lasts about seven years. Do you know that? Seven. That's it. 
Now, my wife and I this year, we're celebrating 18 years of marriage, praise the Lord. Uh, I haven't been able to drive her away yet, and so I think I'm pretty good. Uh, But uh, in that, uh, you know, seven years, here's what I can tell you. As a married man, as someone who's gone through those seven years, let me tell you this, those are the hardest years. That's when it's the most difficult. And if you can get through those ones, then you can probably continue moving forward in your relationship. And you'll experience something similar to what my wife and I did after 10 good years, about nine or 10 good years of marriage. We, we noticed something shifted in our relationship. That things somehow just got a little bit easier. It was a little bit different. That we, we had become more one. That, that it wasn't, um, if I can say, I don't know. Don't tell my wife I said this. Um, and it got easier to love her. Can I say it that way? <laughs> it was, uh, this is online right now. And so here we go. Here comes all the hate mail. Um, but it wasn't so much work. I didn't, have to, um, I didn't have to think about how to love my wife. It had become more natural. It became this, this thing that I had learned a little bit more uh, to, to do. Uh, and so, yes, I still work at it today, but, but there was a shift, a dramatic shift that took place right around nine or 10 years. And based on this statistic of, of the average U.S. Uh, marriage only lasting seven years, here's the reality. Most people are never experiencing that. And here's what they do. They get divorced. They jump into another relationship, and you know how long that one lasts? You guessed it, about seven years. And then they get divorced. And and here's the thing. People are reliving the terrible part over and over and over again. No wonder they think that marriage is terrible. Marriage isn't terrible. It's our view of it that's wrong. It's what we're going into it doing. You see, not only does it only last seven years, but the divorce rate is just under 50%. And listen to this. For a second marriage... For a second marriage, if you've been divorced and you, and you marry again, the odds uh, of your, you getting a divorce go up to 70%. 70% of all second marriages end in divorce as well. Also here, just listen to this. If you come from a broken home, and let's say you and your spouse come from a broken home and you get married, the odds of you staying together, uh, or excuse me, the odds of you getting a divorce skyrocket to 200% greater odds of you getting a divorce. It is a, it is a rampant thing in our culture. It is getting worse. It is not getting better. But here's the, rea- here's the thing I wanna, I wanna just relay to you. Marriage is a miraculous covenant of God. And when we put him where he belongs, he can take this impossible odds and he can do what's never been done before. My wife and I both come from, uh, from the families that have broken marriages. My parents are divorced, her parents are divorced, and we have all the odds stacked against us. And yet, we're going to celebrate 18 years this year because of the grace of God. Not because we're awesome, not because we know what we're doing, not because we're so smart, not because we read a lot of books, not because we took some classes or went to a seminar, but because Jesus is God, because Jesus has saved us from ourselves, and he's transformed our hearts and our lives and caused us to be able to love one another to be able to serve one another the way that he's designed in the covenant that he has made. You see, the most common peop- reason that people give for divorce is this. It's basic incompatibility. What that means is we just don't like each other anymore. We thought it was awesome. Now we don't think it's awesome. We don't want to be together any longer. That's the most basic reason or the most common reason. And then after that, follow things like money or parenting issues or, you know, whatever, all sorts of different issues. But here's what I want to submit to you. The number one reason for divorce has nothing to do with any of those. What I would submit to you is that the number one reason for divorce is in fact adultery. That's the reason why. And here's why. Maybe it's not that that adultery was committed and then the, the divorce happened, but it's the plan for adultery. Let me explain what I mean by that. Nearly all divorce is for the purpose of remarriage. That's the reason for divorce. When's the last time you heard somebody say, hey, I'm gonna get a divorce and I'm gonna live celibate for the rest of my life? You ever heard anybody say that? I never have. Every time someone says, I don't like them, I'm getting a divorce, what they're saying is that they're looking for somebody else. And here's what it sounds like. It sounds like I'm just not happy anymore. That's usually what people say. I'm just not happy anymore. And what they mean by implication is that somebody else is gonna be able to make me happy. And so they're gonna look for that happiness for someone in somebody else. And the problem is always them. You ever notice that? It's always them. It's, it's never me. I, I'm not the issue. It's that I want to be happy and they're just not making me happy. And so I've got to cut them out and find someone else to come make me happy. That, that's the, the fix. And, and let me ask you, how's that going? Is it working? 
I would submit it's not. I would submit that it's actually damaging our culture. It's damaging people in terrible, terrible ways. And so I, what I do is I rip apart my marriage in, in order to chase an elusive emotion and, and hoping that they, some other fairy tale make-believe person that you got from watching some movie will fix it. That, that guy doesn't exist. That, that woman doesn't exist. We, we've got to come back to reality. You see, I realize that as we address the idea of divorce, that it's way more complicated than just throwing a couple of verses out there. I do, I understand that. I understand that there are a lot of things that are difficult for people to hear in this. But, but let me say this. If, if you think that you're the exception to the rule, uh, I want to submit to you, you're probably not. You're probably not. And we need to rethink how we do this. You see, most divorce is for illegitimate reasons and then people jump into a second illegitimate relationship when they marry again or again or again. And so here's what's happening. What Jesus teaches is that, that you are living in perpetual adultery. Did you remember that when we read that in, in uh, uh, Matthew 19? He says, I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery. The number one reason for divorce, it's not any of the reasons that people give. It's primarily adultery. It's because somebody wants to jump into another relationship and Jesus says that, if it's unbiblical reasons, if it's unbiblical uh, reasons for divorce, that you're committing adultery. You see, your perceived happiness is not legitimate means and reason for divorce. Just because you think it's gonna make you happy. I just wanna be happier. It's not a legitimate means and reason for divorce. Like the great theologian Justin Bieber once said, the grass is greener where he water it. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> let me encourage you with this stop looking over there and start looking right here right stop looking out there at them and and oh look at that marriage on facebook and instagram they look like they're so perfect and everything works out for them and they never have any hardship and they never have any difficulty and look they're they're in another picture smiling together on a beach on some remote island and and you just Get, get, this in, get this thought, please, through your head that, that social media is showing you what they want you to see, right? No one's filming, hey, here's our fight. You know, let's watch us. Here's the crazy. We're gonna just let you see it. Nobody does that stuff, right? And so the truth is that marriage is hard because you take one sinner and another sinner and you make them live together. You know what you get? Problems. And then you know what they have? More sinners, there's just, they, more sinners join the family and then you got all sorts of issues going on, okay? So marriage is gonna be difficult. It's not a fairy tale. It's not all gonna be sunshine and rainbows and puppy dogs. There's gonna be issues. And so if we go into it thinking that correctly, then we go into it with the right idea. But, but here's the thing. If there's no easy way to get out and jump into another relationship, if we abandon that thought, then what? What are we left with? Well, then what we're left with is that many people would, they would, number one, slow down and choose more wisely. We wouldn't jump into marriage like a contract. We would, we would slow down. We would ask for wise counsel. We would do things like go to the church and say, hey, we believe that we want to get married. And like, if you were to come to us here at Redemption, we would take you through pre-marriage counseling. We're not just going to rubber stamp your decision to say, hey, I want to get married. We're going to walk through some pre-marriage counseling. And one of the things that I am at doing in pre-marriage counseling is digging up all the dirt. I want to get as many problems out of the way on the front end so that way you can make a wise, informed decision. Maybe as you go through pre-marriage counseling, you realize this really isn't the right person. This isn't what I thought it was going to be and maybe I should slow down or give some time to this or maybe, the, maybe right now is where I call it quits before I jump into marriage. Um, and so you got to have, you, gotta, you know, slow down and maybe ask some wise counsel of some godly people to enter into this with you. And so that's one. Secondly, I think if, if there's no easy way out to jump into another one, people would fight harder for their relationships. They would stop thinking about themselves and their perceived happiness and start fighting for what God says is available. So, so here's the question. Here's the natural question. What do I do? What do I do if now I realize that I'm divorced and I'm, maybe I'm remarried and I realize I'm in a sinful situation? What do I do about that? Well, let me give you three things. Number one, repent. Repentance. Turn to Jesus. Ask him for forgiveness. The blood of Jesus covers even this. You're not, you're not some sort of broken person that's left to the wayside, that's abandoned by God, that oh, Jesus died for every other sin except mine. 
No, that's not true. That's not true. Jesus died for even this. So come to him with your brokenness. Come to him with your sin. Don't try to make it what it's not. Don't try to make excuses for it. Just ask him to forgive and cleanse your heart. And you know what 1 John 1, 9 tells us? He's faithful. He's just. He can forgive you and cleanse you. But it's only Jesus. You're not gonna get it by just covering it up and trying to find another relationship or, you know, putting all your effort into work or making your kids your whole life. That's not going to fix it. Only Jesus is going to fix it. Number one, come to Jesus. Bring repentance. He heals and he restores. Number two, don't give, don't get divorced again, right? Like more sin doesn't fix past sin. Okay, so let's just stop the cycle of insanity and, and let's, just, let's just say from now, number three, from now on, I'm gonna do my level best from this time forward to honor the Lord with my life. That, that I'm just gonna pursue him to, to commit to live biblically. Now, single people at this point might be thinking, and I've kind of addressed single people a couple of times, but maybe you're single, maybe you're a teenager uh, and you're thinking about, you know, not marriage right now. You're like, what in the world are you talking about? I got a couple of teens in my, you know, in my family and I'm sure they're thinking that stuff. But uh, also maybe you're a young adult, you're not married, or maybe, maybe you're, you know, not a young adult, maybe you're an older adult and, and you're not married and you're not sure if you're even going to ever get married. And so you're wondering, what does this have to do with me? What, what, what all, why do I need to sit here and listen to you rave on about all this stuff? And uh, you know, I'm not married. So I, I want to give you at least two reasons. There are at least two reasons why I think it's vital for you to grasp this. It's vital for you to grasp this. Number one, statistically, 90% of you are going to get married at some point. Most of you are absolutely going to be in a marriage relationship at some point. And listen, if you wait, listen to me, you got to grasp this. If you wait until you're married to think about married things, then you're going to do foolish things. So start thinking about marriage now. Start planning for the future now. Start living for that legacy now. And as you live for that legacy today, God will cause that to be a good, God-honoring, worship-filled legacy tomorrow. So don't, don't, don't wait till uh, tomorrow to think about this. Don't wait till you're married to think about this. And secondly, let me just say it like this. Biblical wisdom, it's not reserved to married people. Did you notice that? Like, you can have biblical wisdom about any concept, any idea, anything that has to do with God's word. You can have wisdom about that and you don't need to be married, including marriage. So here, I'll submit this case study to you uh, as an example. Jesus was never married. He was a virgin his entire life. And I would say he's probably the number one source and authority on marriage, right? And so, so, so don't think that you've got to be married in order to have some way to speak to this or to talk to it or talk through it. All right, so, so here's how I want to conclude. I want to conclude with this third point. And what I want to do here is to, to look at guarding against adultery. And I want to conclude with you uh, with 10 practical ways that we can guard against adultery. I just want to get really practical and really just talk to this from a perspective of what can we do right here, right now, in our day, in our age, God, God hates this idea of adultery. The, the ramifications are so massive. The, the cost is so high. What can we do, practically speaking, to, to begin moving the right direction and to get, get, uh, get some safeguards in place? Well, number one, the first thing that I would say to you is decide to submit to Jesus. That's gotta be the first decision you make. If you're not going to submit to Jesus, then all the rest of the stuff I'm going to tell you really is not going to be valuable to you. You may do it. You may not do it. You may try to set up some safeguards, but you're going to lack the power of follow through because there's no amount of willpower that's going to hold you from sinfulness. You're just, Nike's wrong. You can't just do it, right? Like it's not going to work that way. Uh, you'll end up just doing it and that's bad. And so we don't want to, anyway, um, that was funny in my head, but I don't know if you thought it was funny. Um, so, he, here, here's the thing. Jesus is God. He designed marriage and sex. He is the one who gets to make the rules. And so you've got to start there. Will you submit to the Lordship of Jesus? Will you allow him to be the one who sits over all of the decisions of your life? Will he be at the center? Will he be the one who has the gravity to, to decide this should be in your life and this should not be in your life? Where is he at in terms of, of your relationship? 
Have you realized that when Jesus went to the cross, that he wasn't doing it because he just felt like it or had a bad day or these mean Romans somehow, but you know, they, they just decided to murder him or man, those terrible Jews, they just, they abandoned him and they forsook him and they betrayed him. No, Jesus says uh, to Peter, I, I'm going to the cross of my own free will. That it may have been nails that put Jesus on the cross, but it was love that held him there. Love for you desire for relationship with you. And Jesus' blood was spilled and he died and he was buried and he rose again. And he, he did so to redeem or to purchase you back, to buy you back in order to have, have you set in right order, to be saved. And when that takes place and you believe that and you trust in that and you ask him to forgive you, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit moves into your heart and you become a new creation. Old things are passed away and all things are made new. And from there, that new fresh start, everything else finds its right place. Maybe you need to do that today. Maybe this is the, the first time you've really grasped the idea and the, and the, the weight of the gospel uh, for you. Or maybe you have already and today's a day of repentance and it's time to come back to Jesus. And it's time to submit your life to him again. So number one, decide to submit to Jesus. Number two, think gospel-centered. Think gospel-centered. We need to ask God to wash our minds, to renew our minds, to get us to think differently because the world doesn't think gospel-centered, right? Like you, you just talk to people out in the world and uh, they're not thinking about Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. They're thinking about themselves and how do I get mine and how do I stay happy and how do I, right now, how do I stay healthy? Well, I stay healthy by staying away from everybody. Uh, and so, you know, what's happening in, in our culture that way? Number two is think gospel-centered. First Timothy 5.1 tells us that uh, people are to be treated as, it says, treat older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you wanted to make out with your sister? Right, like, I, I have a sister. I, I love her and I do not want to kiss her. Not like that, right? Like, there is nothing in me that wants that because she's my sister. And when I'm able to think gospel-centered, then what I'm thinking is, you are either in my family or you should be in my family. One or the other. Either you're in my family or I want you to be adopted by my dad because he's so amazing and his love is so great for you. And when I think gospel-centered, people aren't objects for me to use. They are precious souls for God's love to be poured out upon. Think gospel-centered. Thirdly, reject the world's view of sex and romance. We have got to abandon the way the world thinks about this. It is... It is insanity. It is not real. That, that what they think about sex and romance is not reality. You see, the, the world knows nothing about God's design. The world knows nothing about God's way. And so here's what they do. They, in order to try to, to, to get the kind of godly passion that he's designed within a, a God-honoring uh, romantic sexual relationship designed for one man and one woman for one life, in order to try to figure out where, where that's at, they chase sin in order to try to get it. And they promote that as this is what it should be like. And this is how it should be. And so that's why, you know, uh, whatever it is, movies, TV shows, um, you know, whatever kind of, kind of things are going on, they're promoting something that's not even real. Because they're trying to chase down the kind of godly passion that only he can pro provide within a monogamous, devoted, biblically gospel-centered marriage relationship. We have to reject the world's view. Fourthly, here's a good one. Don't trust yourself. You are your own worst enemy in this. You can't trust you. You're not, here's the thing. You're not as strong as you want to think you are. You're not. First Corinthians chapter 10 uh, verse, verse 12 tells us that there is no sin that has overtaken you except that which is common to man. Whatever sin that overtakes you, including adultery and sexual sin, it's common to all of us. We are all susceptible to this. I am susceptible to this. You're like, pastor, say it ain't so. I thought you were Superman and you just didn't do it. Of course, I'm susceptible to this as well because before I'm a pastor, I'm a man. I'm just a regular guy like any other regular guy. And so I've got to be careful not to trust myself. 
I've got to say, I am the one that's going to be overtaken in this. And maybe this is an area where you say, you know, I'm just not really tempted in this way. Here's what I would say to you. An unguarded strength is a double weakness. If you think you have a strength and you're like, I don't need to set up guards for this, then you are making yourself doubly susceptible. And so don't, don't be so foolish as to think that you've got this taken care of. Fifth, don't be alone with anyone of the opposite sex. Ever, right? Don't ever do that. Now, okay, I can be alone with my wife. That's okay. I can be alone with my daughters, okay? But the, the, what, I, what I mean by that is anybody outside your family is what I'm talking about. And I also, when I say this, uh, your, um, your in-laws, right? Like if you have a brother or sister-in-law, don't be alone with them, ever, right? They're, they're, this is, there's no good reason to ever be alone with somebody of the opposite sex, ever. There are hundreds of bad reasons to be alone with somebody of the opposite sex. And if you never crack the door to these kinds of things, then you don't have to worry about it taking place. Sixth, use accountability software. If it has the internet, you need accountability software on it. I don't care if it's your phone, your tablet, your computer, whatever it happens to be, you need accountability software on it uh, if it has internet access. You need spiritual people with a spine to see your internet traffic regularly. You need that. Don't, this goes back to don't trust yourself. Uh, it's connected to that idea. Uh, there, you, you, need, you need to be kept on short accounts with other people so they have an access to, to that. Taking that a step further, give your spouse access to your social media. If you have social media, if you have any of those kinds of things going on, if you have email accounts and all that stuff, your spouse needs unhindered access. My phone is never hidden. I'm not, you know, like sitting on it and just trying to, to keep it away from my wife and trying to keep it in my pocket at all times. And if she asks for it, I'm like, oh, well, I don't, I just got to come up with an excuse as to why I don't want to give it to her. No, if my wife ever wants my phone in, a, in a, a split second at any moment, she can always have it. It's not locked so that she can't get into it. And if I do have a lock on it, she has the code uh, for like my iPhone. Her face is put into it as well so she can unlock it. And she has full unhindered access to all my stuff. She, she routinely and frequently will go through my friends list on uh, my social media and she has full veto power to say, I don't like that one, delete them. And you know what happens? She doesn't delete them, I do. I right there in that moment with her, I delete that person and remove them. There's no argument, well, this was my friend in high school and the, she just reached out and she thought it was nice to talk and blah, blah, blah. No, cut them out. Cut them out. I'm afraid to offend them. You know, maybe, maybe I'll hurt their feelings and they won't know Jesus because of that. Who freaking cares? You don't save anybody, right? Like it's not your job to save anybody. Are you so worried about possibly offending that random person you knew 20 years ago that you're not willing to put your wife first? Get a spine, put on your big boy pants and delete them. That's just the way that it goes. It's very, very simple. Give your spouse social media access. Number eight, married couples have primarily married friends. Married couples have primarily married friends. Like my wife doesn't have a group of ladies that she goes and hangs out with, single ladies, and like, hey guys, let's go to the bars and let's go hang out. We're just gonna go and, you know, meet some guys and go dancing. Like, uh, no. No, like if she want to do that, I'll show up <laughs> and we're going to have some problems, you know. Um, we don't do that. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have friends that are single. It just means that we primarily only choose friendships with people that are also married couples. And it's got to work with both of them, right? So like, it can't be that I'm like, I just like this guy. He's so cool. And she's like, yeah, she's annoying. I don't really want to hang out with her. Uh, it can't be that. It's got to be both. It's got to work on, on, on the level of having both of those people uh, together in that, all right? Married friends are primarily married friends. You have a huge opportunity to create union, unity in this or division in this. Choose wisely, all right? Uh, where are we at? Number nine, we're almost done here. Married people, oh wait, I, uh, yeah, uh, this, is, this is number nine. Married people don't have friends of the opposite sex. Like, I don't have friends that are girls. I don't. Now, I'm friendly with girls, and if I do have a friend that is a girl, I, I feel weird saying girl, woman? Maybe that's a better word. Uh, I don't have women that are friends. 
And if I do, it's because she's the wife of one of my man friends. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds weird saying this, but there you go. Uh, it's okay to be friendly, but not friends. There's an inappropriate level of intimacy that happens with that. That's only for my spouse. My wife is my friend. She's my best friend. And I reserve that for her, not some other woman, not some other lady, not that woman at the office or that person I met uh, over here playing softball or, you know, whatever it is. That, that those are inappropriate relationships. It's okay to be friendly, right? You don't have to be a jerk, but you cannot allow them to be your friend. And then fifthly, or 10, uh, and finally, be on guard against flirting. When friendly goes to flirting, now you're in very dangerous territory. You've now opened the door to something that is completely dangerous territory. Now, here's the thing. You can't control others. I know, I'm amazing and you all want to flirt with me and so that's just <laughs> so dumb. But, um, but you can't control other people if, they, if they're going to flirt with you. But you can kill it. You can stop it right away. You can completely destroy it. You can avoid those people. You can have very limited contact if you must have contact with them. Let's say you work with them. You can totally kill that kind of a thing and destroy it. You can't control them, but you can kill it. Now, here's the thing. Sex is not just an animal instinct. It's not. It's not just a physiological function. It's not an overwhelming desire for pleasure. And it's not even just a weird means of uh, perpetuating the human race. It is not God and it's not gross, but it can be a gift when we submit it to the Lordship of Jesus, when he gets to be God and when he gets to oversee it all. So why does God care about this so much? Why, do, why does adultery make God's top 10 list? Because the intimacy of marriage is a reflection of the deep sacrificial relationship that Jesus wants to have with you and with me. It's the devotion that Jesus has toward you. And so here's what I want, want to encourage you with, that Jesus was willing to pay for this intimacy by spilling his sinless, precious, spotless blood for you. That, that he poured out his blood in order to save you, in order to redeem you, in order to remove your sin and to make relationship with God possible. And when you recognize this and submit to Jesus' design for marriage, it starts, with, it starts with submitting to him as God. And so here's the question, will you? Will you submit to him as God? Will you, will you allow him to have the rightful place in your heart, in your mind, in your life, in your decisions? If you've never given your life to Jesus, right now is the time. It's, it's as simple as this. Recognizing that you have sinned against God, realizing that Jesus has died for that sin, and asking for his forgiveness. There are no magic words. You don't need to go through a certain prayer. I don't even need to lead you in a prayer. You can pray right now in your mind. You don't even, you don't even need to stop and say the words. You just, just right now in your mind, just connect to the Lord and just ask for him to save you. And he will. He'll absolutely save you. And the very next thing that you do is you tell somebody about it. You confess with your mouth, I am saved by the blood of Jesus. And if that's you and you've, and you've made that decision, then we'd love to connect with you. We'd love to be able to encourage you in your faith. We'd love to be able to help you grow in your faith. And so connect with us through Facebook, through our, uh, through our website, uh, redemptioncalvary.org, or send an email to us. We'd love to be able to connect with you and help you grow in your faith. Or maybe, maybe today's the day of rededication for you. You gotta rearrange some things. You gotta put some things in order. You gotta say, Jesus, you are at the center. I'm, not, I'm no longer there, but it's you. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. God, thank you for the chance to study it together and we pray that you would be glorified, that your name would be exalted, that um, we would be submitted to you in your way and, and just worshiping you. And so, God, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you have designed marriage and we pray that you would help us to submit to it the way that you have designed it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.